Mindfulness Mode 440. So in both cases, if we have done something that is harmful and hurtful, we take that in and we take responsibility. Hey, Bruce Langford here. Welcome back to Mindfulness Mode, a place where you can reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness by listening to the interviews that I, I do with my guests on the topic of mindfulness. Have you ever felt like you just feel groggy and tired when you wake up? Well, you can end that. You can finish that. Download my 12-minute meditation, which will help you to feel alert and focused when you wake up. It's a guided meditation that'll take you through the steps of feeling invigorated, feeling dynamic and fresh and ready for the day. You'll feel so much more vibrant. You'll be the energetic person that you really want to be. You can download this free meditation at mindfulnessmode.com slash awaken with focus. And now on to today's episode. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview about rebooting and leading with humanity with Jerry Colonna. Hey, Mindful Tribe, guess what? I have an amazing guest today who has poured his heart and soul into a new book that he's written, and I can't wait to tell you about it. I have Jerry Colonna with me today. Hey, Jerry, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am always in mindfulness mode. That's great. (laughs) That is so great. Jerry is the CEO and co-founder of Reboot. And that's an executive coaching and leadership development firm dedicated to the idea that better humans make better leaders. For nearly 20 years, he's used this knowledge to gain as an investor. He's become an investor, an executive board member for more than 100 organizations to help entrepreneurs and, and other people to lead with humanity, resilience, and equanimity. And so it's it's great to have you here on the show, Jerry. I'm very excited and I'm very excited about your new book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. So what does mindfulness mean to you, Jerry? Well, it's, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me. It's really a delight and I really appreciate the work that you're trying to do. And I'm imagining many folks in your audience are helped by the work that you do. And so let's just pause and recognize that. So what does mindfulness mean to me? I come from a Buddhist tradition. I took my refuge vows as a Buddhist in 2004. I'm sorry, 2003, 16 years ago. And so when I hear that word, it's hard for me not to think of those teachings. And that said, I think that there are several phrases that come to mind. But the most powerful of which is paying attention, waking up and paying attention, paying attention to how your body is, paying attention to how your life is unfolding, paying attention to how your heart is holding itself, paying attention to the person across the table from you, just paying attention and being aware. Those are the things that the word mindfulness mean to me. And so before 2003, did you find that you were not paying attention as much as you should have been, especially looking back? 
Oh, sure. I mean, I think there was this uh, almost seminal break in my life in 2002 in which the constructed self that I had created in my 20s and in my 30s, where I was a successful venture capitalist in New York and I had built a, one of the first firms focused on internet-related businesses. And I was participating in that first frenzied time of creating the internet. There was this break where that which I had constructed was no longer sufficient, and I was dying inside and overwhelmed and lost. And as I often teach and say, I had to actually stop at that moment and learn to stand still. And so here's another phrase that I associate with the word mindfulness, standing still and paying attention to your life. And so the choice was beforehand, it wasn't just that I wasn't mindful, I wasn't even standing still. And then I began to stand still. So up to that point, you believed you had to constantly push forward. Is that right? That's right. It was this, uh, you know, I was running away from demons from my past and moving towards what I wasn't really sure. And what did those demons look like? What kind of demons did you have chasing you? That I needed more and more and more to be happy. I needed more and more and more affirmation, external approbation, coins in my pocket to finally feel love, safety, and belonging, and feel that I was, in effect, worthy of all of those things. And thankfully, there was this moment in my life where it all came crashing down, and I had a choice. I could just sort of give up or, thankfully, start paying attention to my life. And when did you first start feeling a sense of true belonging? What a great question. I'll reference some of the Dharma. Okay. I remember reading one of the Buddha's teachings of the, in one of the sutras in which he essentially said, you are fundamentally good simply because you were born human, not because of what you've achieved or what you've done or who you know. And this went off like a bomb in my mind because it felt contrary to everything that I had been socialized to believe, which was that in order to feel worthy of belonging, I had to do more and more. Um, when I started to begin to take in the possibility that I was worthy of love simply by being human, because as the Buddha taught, human beings are the closest, are the only sentient beings capable of enlightenment. And so, therefore, there's evidence, right? It felt like it turned on its head everything that I had learned beforehand. And so, that was the beginning. I would say that it's a continuous practice still that I work towards. And when was the first time you felt enlightenment? Oh, I don't know that I feel enlightened. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask. Do you feel enlightened? But if you do, when did you first feel it? What was that like? I, I want to know. I would say that, um, I'll tell you a funny story. So speaking of the book for a moment, Sharon Salzberg, my Buddhist teacher and dear, dear friend, wrote the foreword to the book. And a few months back, maybe about a year ago, 
we were walking together in Manhattan and uh, we were going out to dinner and I stopped at, a, at a, 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 in, an intersection. We were waiting for the light to change. And I looked at her and I said, Sharon, or she, she looked at me and she said, Jerry, you look happy. And I said, well, I've been meditating for 15 years. I might as well learn to be happy at some point. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> as I often say, enlightenment's a funny word for me. I don't know what it means. I, so it's hard for me to say, do I feel enlightened or all that stuff? Here's what I can say. And here's this word that you, know, you even read in the introduction. The notion of equanimity is really, really compelling to me. And the way I define that is things are crappy and I feel okay. Things are great, and I feel okay. And things are tough, and I can find my center again. And nothing that I have ever learned or done in the last 25, 30 years of my life has stopped the roller coaster. But I tend not to board the roller coaster for too long. I tend to pay attention enough to say, I'm about to buy the ticket to the roller coaster. Do I really want to do that? Because that kind of sucks. I don't want to do that anymore. So long-winded way of responding to your question, but yeah, I'm not enlightened. Equanimity, to me, I think it's a lot about mental calmness and composure. You seem to have great composure and groundedness. Did, it, did a lot of that come from meditation? It's hard to know for sure because we don't A-B test our lives, right? Right. There's two versions of me, one who has a daily practice and one who doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's take a look. <laughs> but I will tell you that um, there are periods in my life where my practice has slipped and there are periods in my life where my practice feels solid. And funny things happen when my practice is solid. I feel better. So, you know, again, I, I often don't, I don't practice in order to be enlightened. I practice so that I can feel better. Right. Well, after all, being enlightened, that's just a word. It's just and a word. And it means different things to different people. And a lot of people have no idea what it means. And I don't know if any of us know what it means. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say this. I think I'm a kinder, gentler person when okay. I practice. You know, I think I'm a, a better person in some ways because of that. Um, Bruce, do we edit? Yes. Okay. Because my son just started showering. Can you hear it? I can't hear it. Great. Okay. So, all right. <laughs> He's next door. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, and I almost lost my equanimity. Well, you, <laughs> you still seem pretty grounded. <laughs> so, well, I want to ask you about Sharon. When I first started my podcast, I thought there's one person I really want to have on my show. What's Sharon Salzberg like? What was it like having her as your teacher? Now you're going to make me cry. She is a gift. She is a real gift. Um, in the forward of the book, she tells the story of how she and I first met, which was we were at the dinner hosted by a mutual friend of ours, Jeff Walker, who was asking the folks at the table to respond to a question about meditation and what did it mean to us. And I began telling the story about the fact that when I was, when in 2002, when the depression hit me so hard, there were three books that I read that changed my life. One was Parker Palmer's Let Your Life Speak. Another was Pema Chodron's When Things Fall Apart. 
And the third was Sharon Salzberg's Faith, which is mm. probably one of her least known, but to my heart, one of her most powerful books. Mm-hmm. And I told this story, and of course, being Jerry, I was just in tears because what yeah. her book meant to me was that someone I admired was authentically and honestly grappling with the demons in her life. And so to go back to your question, what, what is she like? She remains my teacher, but she's also my friend. Right. And so when she needs my hand, I am there for her. And in that way, she teaches me what it means to come off the pedestal of teacher and to just hang out and be human beings together. Sharon is a deeply human uh, teacher. And Sharon, I know you're going to listen to this. I love you. And I am deeply grateful for all that you have been and brought to this world. So that's what Sharon is like. Well, it certainly comes across in her books. Mm. And I've read almost all of her books. And I just feel such a connection Mm. because that's the way she writes. Can I share one of my favorite passages from her books? Yes, of course. So I don't have the passage memorized, but I have the concept. And right. find it really useful. And in Loving Kindness, she has this wonderful section where she talks about the difference between guilt and remorse. Mm. And I was raised um, in, in the Catholic tradition. I was raised a, a good Italian-American from Brooklyn. Yo, what's up? Right. Uh, there's that piece <laughs> yeah. of me. Right. Yeah. And so I have a deep and profound relationship with guilt. Hello, guilt. You're my old friend. Yeah. And when I read that passage, and even today, when I read that passage or speak of that, um, I'm deeply moved by it. And, and in it, what, what Sharon speaks about is the fact that guilt is ego aggrandizing. Guilt takes the focus off of the action and onto ourselves and makes us, through self-laceration, makes us repeatedly beat ourselves up. Whereas remorse and regret is the ground from which you can learn and grow. And so regret. So in both cases, if we have done something that is harmful and hurtful, we take that in and we take responsibility. So this is not to, to take away responsibility, but it put, but the notion of regret and remorse enable us to put the focus back onto the person who has been hurt by our actions. And if we are profoundly and fundamentally good, then we can learn from that remorse. If we know the the truth of the Buddhist teachings, then we can learn and know from that. Now, here's the part about Sharon, which I don't think I've ever said out loud. The thing about that passage is that that doesn't come, when Sharon writes about that, it doesn't come from some ethereal place on high in the mountaintop. You know how some teachers will, will, will teach from that place. It comes from the lived experience of being a human being. Sharon knows the truth of that distinction because she has lived the truth of that distinction. And that's wow. very different. That's very relatable. And so it's accessible. That's incredible to hear you express that connection that you have with her. That's, that's fantastic. Jerry, I just 
drove back from an event where I was speaking in Pennsylvania and I was listening to Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. And of course, all about vulnerability. What is the most vulnerable thing you shared in your new book, Reboot? Oh my. (laughs) There's so many choices. You know, before we started recording, I noted that I feel both excited and terrified at the possibility here. And it's in part because, well, as I say in the introduction and as Sharon notes in the forward, um, I wasn't going to do this kind of bullshit, excuse my language, hollow, surface level kind of book. Here are the five tricks that you must need do to be a good leader, right? Right. And there are many books that speak of authenticity and vulnerability in leadership, but the author doesn't necessarily show up themselves. Right. And that dissonance I have always found disturbing. And so just, you know, just the way I found that in Sharon's books, that Sharon is there, I needed to make sure that I showed up. So writ large, the entire book is one long, vulnerable spot. Not only because writing well is so important to me, but because the stories I tell, because some of the stories I tell are memoir-like stories and some are, are composite stories from the lives of my clients. But I had to show up. And so whether it's discussing, for example, my mother's mental illness and my father's alcoholism and the relationship between that and the way in which I have had to learn to be in relationship with people that I perceive to be irrational, because everybody else is irrational, not me. I have no problem. Of course. It's all those other people, right? And think right. about how that shows up in our work and our leadership or my relationship with money. And the, the growing up in poverty and feeling the need to, the relationship between the accumulation of money and safety, right, which can trump all other feelings, or my own journey and relationship to depression and self-loathing and self-criticism and um, challenges and the multiple times in my life where I felt suicidal, you know, spin the dial, pick one, which is the most vulnerable. Mm. I think the most vulnerable is the fact that I cracked open my rib cage and here's my heart. Right. Please be kind. Right. That the whole experience for me is one big cracking open of the rib cage. Because here's the thing, Bruce, in my Buddhist tradition, one of the images that is super powerful for us is the notion of the warrior. And a warrior stands with a strong back and an open heart. And to me, that warrior's stance is not an aggressive stance. It's not fists up, ready to fight the world. It's world, do with me as you will. My back remains strong. I sit like a mountain in the midst of a hurricane, as Anipema Chodron teaches. And that's hard. And it's really hard to lead from that place. But I think leaders who lead from that place, we will follow them unto the ends of the earth, won't we? Yes. So besides writing your book and cracking open this Mm. whole vault Mm. of vulnerability, what else has been the toughest thing in your life to conquer, to move through? In the last chapter, I open up by musing aloud 
the question that still reverberates for me to this day. Am I a good man? See, I identify as male. And the question I think that more than anything else that I continue to work with in this, in my practice in the art of growing up is, am I good enough? It's a complex question. It's a hard question. Have I been a good enough man? Have I been kind enough? Have I been gentle enough? Have I been strong enough? Have I taken care of the people that I have identified as it's my job to take care of? You know, we can question, you know, the assignment of roles that we place in society. But the way I have been socialized to be a father, to be a man, is that I take care. As I say in the book, I build castles and I slay dragons. It took me a long time to understand that part of my task was to also tend to the, to the hearth fire. And so that is probably the toughest thing that I continue to work with. Because everything that I do, positive and negative, goes through this filter of, and the truth is, accepting the fact that there are times in which I fail to live up to that aspiration and not then toss myself into the fires of self-denigration, that's a tough one. Thank God I have a meditation practice because I sit with that every day. And I agree. Thank God I have one too. (laughs) Same. Yeah. I want to ask you, does the political climate in your country affect, like, how does it affect your inner psyche? How do you deal with that? And how has it affected you? Okay. So the first thing I will say is I'll make a non, uh, I won't answer the question directly, Uh, But the first thing I will say is the gift of the troubled leadership that my country is going through. Well, there are many. The first is to reinforce what happens when we give power to someone who hasn't faced their inner demons. Okay. And this is not a unique to the United States in 2019 problem. This is a human, human condition problem. We are always giving power to people who have not done their work. And that is an awful experience. The second thing is to, to connect with, the second gift is to connect with the gift of the realization of what happens when internal suffering is let loose into the world. And, and we see that time and time again every single day. Yes, with, we do. With, with the latest outrage or this out latest outrageous statement. But you ask, what does it do internally? I think what it does for me internally, and I'll speak only for myself, I think that there is a larger opportunity here, which is that Americans make a mistake if we think that our current political climate is something that is external, that has been externally foisted upon us rushing hacking of our elections notwithstanding it is an expression of our unresolved issues you know if we take the, the, the exploitation and oppression that is race-based for example that every day we are living with it is shocking and surprising to those of us who have been racialized and socialized to see ourselves as white and therefore normative the truth of the matter is, 
the United States of America was founded in a racist container. And to deny that fact is to deny the truth. And the more truth is denied, the more powerful that truth gets pissed off and acts out. And so because I believe in the fundamental goodness of all human beings, by the way, all human beings, Buddha didn't say, except for these, right? Except for the people that we don't like. Right. All human beings. Because I believe in that, I have faith and confidence not only in my country, but I have faith and confidence in our society to do the right thing. But it's not going to be without pain. And we have no choice right now except to face the dark parts of our body politic and lean into that space and say, okay, here we go. So you asked me to get up there. I hope I wasn't too much on a pedestal there. But don't you think that we have to experience pain in every part of our life in some way in order to move forward? Yes. Can I alter what you said in one important way? Pain is always there. First noble truth. Right. Second noble truth, avoidance of pain increases the pain. So it's not that we have to see the challenge I have with the way you phrased it, Bruce, is that it implies that there's some sort of romanticized that which does not kill me makes me stronger in philosophy. The danger with that is that it sounds like we send a message to our children that you should seek out pain. No, 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 no. Don't worry. Pain will find you. Right. Because it is part of the human condition. Right. So rather than seeking it out, sit still. It will find you. Stop running. Stop being so busy that you can't even take a breath. It will find you. Just as sadness will find you. But just as joy will find you. Just as resilience will find you. And in that finding, then we get to grow. And so we can turn pain into something that needs to be avoided. The teachings tell us that only makes it worse. Or we can understand that when pain comes, we say, okay, here I go. Let's lean in. This is a tough moment. What are you here to teach me? Because everything is workable. We have to be willing to stop and willing to be better listeners. Amen. That sounds like that's, yeah. And listening to our own heart as much as to those around us. That's where the mindfulness kicks in. Right. It's like, to me, my mindful mornings include the hour or so that I journal each morning. Because in that moment, I'm paying attention to my heart. My friend who has been with me since the day I was born and will continue beating until the day I die. I'm paying attention to how I feel because if I don't pay attention to that, that will shape and shift my days every day and cause me to do things that I might not be proud of. So, Does your journaling take on a certain form or a certain structure or do you just kind of go at it and whatever comes out, comes out? Uh, it almost always starts with a kind of simple question right now or a statement. Right now I'm feeling... Right. And it's a, it's a call to what am I doing? Right. And it might start with yeah. like, um, 
I had this dream last night. Like last night, I had a dream uh, that I was back in in partnership with an old business partner, and he remains a really close friend. And about every year or so, I have a dream that involves this guy, which usually indicates that something's up with me in terms of my career. Mm. And so it was kind of a call from my unconscious to pay attention to my life. And so I journaled about the dream, and then and then I went from the journaling session to a sitting session. And my days are at my best when I have that. So I might sit for half an hour, I might sit for an hour, I might sit for 40 minutes, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the entire experience, and by the way, I don't look at my phone before any of this. I, well, that's good to know. You, you, your phone comes later. Right? That part of my brain comes later. The like, right. what do right. I have to do today comes later. Yes. Right? right? And so the journal tends to be, sometimes it's diary-like, yesterday I... Sometimes, mm-hmm. but more often than not, it's just a checking in. How am I doing? How big of a role does gratitude play in your life? I don't have a formal gratitude pr- practice, which I think a lot of folks do. And I, I have seen them benefit from that. I have been journaling since I was 13 before I understood things like gratitude journals and that sort of thing. Right. That said, when I slow down and pay attention to all that is good about my life, which I guess is a form of gratitude, my day goes better, right? I'm, I'm going to bring attention to something, you know, before we started recording, I think one of the first things I did was I said, it's a beautiful day out. Yes, you did. That feels like a gratitude statement. Yes. It's like, God, and right now I'm looking out my window and storm clouds have rolled in because it's the mountains. So I live in Boulder and here we go. Yeah. The weather's going to change. And I feel grateful for that change in weather, even though, 40 minutes ago, it was sunny. Right. So is that a gratitude practice? It feels organic I think it to is. me. Yeah. Yeah. But you're just so used to looking at life that way that others might say it's gratitude, right? That's right. To me, it's foundational. It's just, you want to end the day feeling better? Pay attention. You've spent so much time helping others through Reboot.io and, you know, the executive coaching. Can you tell us a transformation story of one of the people that you've helped to move forward? I'll tell this story. And this is a bit of a composite story because I tell this story in the book. So one of the things, one of the basic tenets of the book is that leadership and the leadership journey is a really difficult journey. And in that journey is a gift. And that is if you are willing to use the journey of leadership to look at the demons in your life, to look at what I call in the book, subroutines, the technical programs, the belief systems that define everything about your life, you get an opportunity to finally fully grow up. So I tell this story about a client for whom we did a 360 degree performance review. And the predominant piece of feedback he got was he's never satisfied. He can never celebrate success. And I think that the standard operating procedure would be to sort of encourage a gratitude awareness or to encourage like, hey, every Friday, let's have a beer party, right? I live in the startup world. That wasn't going to work with this guy. He'd undermine it at every step of the way. I knew my client well enough. 
And so we started doing some work together. And what we began to unpack was a belief system he had, which was to celebrate was to relax and to relax was dangerous. And as we started to unpack it, he related back to the fact that his grandparents had survived the Nazi programs. Right. And here's the belief system that he grew up with. If you celebrate slash relax, the Nazis are going to knock on the door. Right. So do not relax. Okay. Okay. And so it doesn't matter that he's two generations away from Holocaust. His internal system was wired to believe that. Now, by surfacing that, by becoming mindfully aware of that, by coming to understand and being in relationship to that and not treat it as something to be beaten up, stop being this way. But in fact, take a pause and love the wish for protection that's implicit in that. He was able to speak about it with loving kindness towards himself. And this was the trick to then be able to go to his inner circle of leaders and say, so this is the problem I have. And so I'm going to be uncomfortable when you roll out a birthday cake in the team. And that gave them permission to pat him on the back and gently say to him, you're safe. The company's not going to fail because we took an hour out to celebrate somebody's birthday. Right. And that kind of transformation becomes much more permanent than a simple life hack, life trick of, hey, on Fridays, let's order in beer. Right. Yes. Does that make sense? It does. It makes total sense. Yeah. The key was to be able to create the safety for him to look at his life in a meaningful way and to make the connections between the past and the present. That's the key. Jerry, have you ever been bullied or were you ever a bully? Were you ever in a situation where mindfulness would have made a difference as far as you know, this kind of thing. Do you have a story for us? Yeah. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell this story. I don't tell the story in the book. I grew up with a lot of violence as a kid. I remember one time there was a lot of violence put on upon me. I was beaten up often and I would occasionally lose it. And so it's funny. I'm going to show you, unfortunately, your listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm going to bring up two characters. So this I'm showing up to the camera is Hulk, uh, right? Marvel's character. And this is Thor. Oh yeah, there he is. Okay. So um, I grew up and there's a Thor that, there's a Hulk that lives inside of me. Okay. A raging character. And when I was a kid, um, there was this one time in Brooklyn where we lived on the second floor of a two family house. And I looked out the window and I saw that a neighbor boy was throwing rocks at my younger brother, John. Oh yeah. And I was, and Hulk came out and I ran down those stairs and I pulled this kid over the fence and I threw him down on the floor and I pounded his face Mm. and I broke his nose and I was, you do not mess with my people. Wow. But part of my path into adulthood has been to learn to take the Hulk that exists within me and turn him into Thor. Because the mythology that Marvel is so skilled at giving us is that superpowers have dark sides and light side. And the fact that Hulk and Thor have a relationship is not an accident. Hulk and Thor are equal in power, but Thor is committed to justice. 
Hulk has the capacity to rage out of control. And so for me, being aware, knowing that I have that capacity allows me to continually take that energy and turn it into righteousness. Do not mess with my people. And if I expand the net wide enough, my people happen to be every human being. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so all of a sudden we had this gorgeous, glorious experience of, wow, I can be Thor for everyone. Not just my brother. By the way, don't throw rocks at my brother. No, I won't. <laughs> Trust me, I will not do that. I won't throw rocks at anybody, but uh, definitely not your brother. So you're still committed to justice. Amen. Right? Amen. Yeah, yeah. It's the Bodhisattva vow, isn't it? Yes. We, we, we vow to take rebirth until all beings are free from suffering. Jerry, as we move forward, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. Okay. If that's okay. Quick answers are tough for me. <laughs> are they? Well, let's see how you do. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? This might be easy. Well, though it's hard is I have to choose between Sharon and Ani Pema children. Okay. But, but in this moment, I would say Ani Pema because she was my gateway drug. Okay. She was the one who first introduced me to, wait, there's a different way of being Right. in that way. Right. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It has enabled me to understand and move towards an equanimity. And so when the highs are high, I'm okay. And when the lows are low, I'm okay. And that's everything, isn't it? Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. It's body-based awareness. It's a, neurologically, it's a parasympathetic nervous system reset, <laughs> but, or reboot. But uh, what it really is, is uh, it's paying attention without judgment. That's the key. Your book, Reboot Leadership and the Art of Growing Up, has a lot to do with mindfulness. Mm. What other book would you recommend that is related to mindfulness? I know that you've mentioned some earlier. Here's a book that comes to mind because there are so many if I were to look at my shelf. But here's a book that comes to mind that I go back to time and time again. Comfortable with Uncertainty by Pema Chodron. It's 108 teachings. They're short little teachings. And when things are really, really tough, I read a teaching or two at night and it brings me back to a center. And my next question is whether or not there's any kind of app that you use or any of your clients use that can help with mindfulness. I'm a huge fan of 10% Happier. Okay. They happen to be friends of mine too. So that, that is helpful. And I think it has some of the best teachers, Sharon being one of them, but Joseph Goldstein as well. I'm a, also a huge, a huge fan of just sitting. Mm. Just sitting. Yeah. Um, there's a famous story of a student coming to a Tibetan Buddhist teacher and asking, Master, what is the path to mindfulness? And he lifts up his robes and shows his bare ass and points to the calluses. <laughs> and what he's basically saying is, we sit. Uh-huh. When all else fails, you sit. And when you want to jump up from the cushion, you sit some more. 
and you pay attention to the impulse to jump up and you sit. Well, some people do encourage you to jump up and take action and get physical and get moving. And that's kind of the, the Tony Robbins way. What would oh, you heavens. say to that? You know what I mean? It's like, come on, rah, rah, rah. If you're, oh, if you're not sure, you know, jump up and down and run. And, well, and I go. like the idea of discharging emotional energy, otherwise known right. as anxiety, um, getting physical. I do box several times a week. That's, that's important for me. But um, yeah, no, I think, a so lot of, I think a lot of damage gets done in the world when people move without paying attention okay well your website is reboot.io correct is there any place else you'd like to send our listeners um you could look at uh, rebootbyjerry.com that's the that's the standalone book website um but you right. can find us both you know in both places so and your book comes out this month yes yes uh two weeks i'm super excited about that that is very exciting yeah and this episode will be up and uh, you can get that book in your hands. So or 10, get that book. Or a hundred yeah. or a thousand. Just buy them mindfully. <laughs> okay. <laughs> buy a, a thousand copies of this book and buy it mindfully. <laughs> and you can share it with your followers. That's right, Jerry? Right. That's right. <laughs> well, Jerry, it's been a pleasure. It's been a true pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it's been delight, Bruce. I really enjoy talking to you. Yeah, I really appreciate you. So all the best and uh, we'll get that book out there. You got it. So thank you, my take... friend. And thank you for the work that you do. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, awaken with focus a 12-minute meditation just for you, recorded by me. It, you can be alert, focused after waking. That's what it's all about. Feel invigorated, fresh, and dynamic. Let your vibrancy feed those around you. Download this meditation to help you get going in the morning at mindfulnessmode.com slash awakenwithfocus. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.